Well, bless the name of the Lord. We thank God for the opportunity to spend time in His Word again. And greetings to you from Mexico, where it's very humid, hot and humid. And I'm in the city of Cancun, which is basically a very wonderful holiday destination. And I wish that I could spend a little bit more time here uh, at the beach and so on. But it's not the reason why I'm here. So uh, this evening I'm traveling to Chiapas, uh, where I'll be spending the weekend uh, ministering the word of the Lord. So today we're speaking about the advantages of Jesus' humanity, the advantages of his humanity. Now, in our previous session, which was last Sunday, uh, we dealt with the subject of drifting, or the author, in fact, dealt with the subject of drifting, and uh, he continues now to illustrate Jesus' superiority to angels. So in chapter 1, the writer brilliantly demonstrated from the scriptures the deity of Jesus and his superiority over angels. And here in chapter 2 now, which is the B part of chapter 2, he demonstrates the humanity of Jesus from the scriptures and applies the implications of Jesus' humanity. Now, firstly, it would be biblically wrong to think of Jesus as merely God or merely a man. It's wrong to think of him also as half God and half man or any other percentage that you may use in your split. It's also wrong to think of him as man on the outside and God on the inside. The Bible teaches that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That is, uh, his human nature was added to his divine nature. And both these natures existed in one person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Now, in the early church days, in the times of the church fathers, you know, they dealt, they grappled with the idea of the incarnation. Uh, and of course, uh, they view it, and so should we, as the most important truths, one of the most important truths of our faith. And because of this, they uh, formulated what has come to be called the Chalcedonian Creed. I know that most of us have not heard of the Chalcedonian Creed. It's a statement that sets forth what we are to believe and what we are not to believe about the Incarnation. This creed was the fruit of a large council that took place from October 8th to November 1 in the year 451 
AD in the city of Chalcedon, and that's been taken as the standard, the orthodox definition of the biblical teaching of the person of Christ since that day onwards. And it's been accepted broadly by all the major branches of Christianity. There are five main truths uh, that is um, contained within this creed, the Chalcedon Creed, and it's summarized um, with regards to the Incarnation. Firstly, it states that Jesus has two natures. He is God and man. Secondly, each nature is full and complete. In other words, he's fully God and fully man. Thirdly, each nature remains distinct. Fourthly, Christ is only one person. And the last point, things that are true of the one nature, speaking of the nature of him as God, are nonetheless true of the person of Christ. Now, I hope sometime in the future, I will be able to teach you on this aspect in much greater detail, at a session all on its own, to help you understand how important it is that we properly understand the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, Significantly, the very first false teaching about Jesus in the days of the early church did not deny that he was God, but it denied that he was human, and it said he only seemed to be human. Now, this heresy was called docetism, spelled D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M, coming from the Greek word to seem. And it was stored by Serenthus. His name is spelled C-E-R-I-N-T-H-U-S. And he's the person who opposed the Apostle John in the city of Ephesus. And it's probably in response to his teachings that John wrote those little books just before the book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And you can see here in 1st John 4, 2, as if John is responding to him, and it says, This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Later in 1 John 5, verse 6 and 8, John continues this, and he said that Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and blood, speaking of his natural birth, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. Now you would know that under the law of Moses it states that in the mouth of two witnesses, Truth is established. And John is using that concept here, establishing that there is now there are three witnesses when it comes to the incarnation of Jesus: the Spirit, the water, and the blood. 
And it says these three witnesses are in agreement. Now, one can imagine all kinds of objections that people would have uh, that was raised about the humanity of Jesus. For example, when Jesus became flesh, didn't that make him lower than the angels? Or, how then can it be said that he is superior to angels? Now, the humanity of Jesus provided several advantages. Firstly, in disarming Satan and delivering us from the fear of death. Secondly, in regaining man's lost dominion. Thirdly, in bringing many sons to glory. And fourthly, in becoming a sympathetic high priest. Yes, becoming flesh and blood did not prove to be a handicap or a mark of inferiority. Rather, it served to make him perfect. We'll look at that again in a moment. So, firstly, it enabled him to regain man's lost dominion. Now, in Hebrews 2, verse 5 to 9, let's read this, this passage together. It was not to angels that God subjected the inhabited world of the future about which we are speaking, but one has solemnly, one has solemnly testified somewhere in Scripture saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you, are grace, that you graciously care for him? You have made him... Uh, for a little while lower in status than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet, confirming his supremacy. Now in putting all things in subjection to man, he left nothing outside of his control. But at present, we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while by taking on the limitations of humanity, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, uh, he might experience death for, uh, for the sins of everyone. Now, I didn't state earlier, but I was reading from the Amplified Version uh, in this particular passage, which is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 to 9. Now, as you know, man once had dominion over the earth. The Bible says in Genesis 1, 26, 28 onwards, and the beginning mankind was given dominion over God's creation. David marveled that God set mankind over his works. And the passage we read, in fact, that passage in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6 to 8, is in fact a direct quotation from Psalm 8, verse 4 to 6. And here's how it reads in Psalm 8, 4 to 6. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than God, and you've crowned him 
with glory and honor. You made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, and you've put all things under his feet. Now, if you listened attentively, you would have noticed that in this passage I've just read, you have made him a little lower than God. But the passage I read earlier said, you have made him a little lower than angels. Now, I've quoted again from the Amplified Version, but this is Psalm 8, verse 4 to 6. And you need to realize that here in this passage, let me explain it, what it means a little lower than God. Now, in this translation, the word God is the word Elohim. And um, there's no reference of angels when it comes to the word Elohim. It's a Hebrew word, and it's usually translated God. But it can also mean gods with a small g uh, when it's used in reference to pagan gods or other nations. For example, in Exodus 20, verse 3, it says, You shall have no other gods, and there's the word Elohim again, the Hebrew word, before me. You shall have no other gods before me. So, in the original script, it says that you have made him a little lower than Elohim. That is, in his, in his original state, God made man a little lower than himself. So Elohim created mankind in his image, his likeness, and in Christ, the seed of God is transmitted by the Spirit to begin the process of restoration in mankind to walk the earth as sons of God or sons of Elohim. So yes, there is that time when man was a little lower than angels because of the fall. But now in Christ, there's the restoration where we come back to be a little lower than Elohim himself. Secondly, man has lost that dominion. Did you know that? It's rather evident when you look at the world around you. Uh, and so the author laments in, a sta in this statement. He says, even though God has placed all of his creation under the authority of mankind, he says, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. He's, he's stating that uh, the authority that God has given to reign, uh, to have dominion, he says, we don't see that under man because of the fall, you see. But of course, he acclaimed later on, but we see Jesus. There's the firstborn son of God, who is the proton, the first one to demonstrate that even though you live in a physical body on earth, you are able to actually walk with God and exercise dominion and authority uh, on this earth. Jesus as a man regained that dominion. And this is so important for us to know, because even though he, Jesus was made a little lower than angels for a short while, how, what does that mean? Because he put on an earth suit. He sided with those who fell away from God. By his incarnation, he put on a physical body, and in that ranking, he took on that position of being a little lower than angels. But because he suffered death, he was crowned with glory and honor. What man once had and what he lost, 
Jesus had regained. And those who are in him share in that rule. We are joint heirs with him, both now and in the future. Then the Bible says that he is seated at the right hand of God, because Christ rules over all. And you see this in Ephesians 1. I'm reading from verse 20 to 23. Again, I'm using the Amplified Version uh, in this text. It says, which he produced in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, whether angelic or human, and far above every name that is named, above every title that can be conferred, not only in this age and world, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in every realm in subjection under Christ's feet, and appointed him as supreme and authoritative head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills and completes all things in all believers. Bless the Lord. Now, those who are in Christ also sit with him. This is a position of seatedness, and I think you need to understand a position of seatedness. We talked about this earlier in the series, series rather, where the Father said to the Son, Sit at my right hand, until I make all of your enemies to come under your footstool. And that uh, position of seatedness at the right hand of God is also indicative of the divine uh, nature of Christ, because only one who is of, of divine descent can sit in the presence of God himself. And the Father said to the Son, Sit at my right hand. Now. We are seated with him, Ephesians 2, verse 4 to 6 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great and wonderful love, for which he loved us, with which he loved us, even when we were spiritually dead and separated from him because of our sins, he made us spiritually alive together with Christ, for by his grace, his undeserved favor and mercy, you have been saved from God's judgment, and he raised us up together with him when we believed and seated us with him in heavenly places because we are in Christ Jesus. That is your proper position in Christ is to be seated with him. When we are seated with him, when we realize and understand that we are seated in Christ and with Christ, we understand that that is a position of rest. It's also a position of authority, of dominion and power. And then it says, and he shall reign, we shall reign with him throughout eternity. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26 and 27. And he who overcomes um, and who keeps my deeds until the very end, to him I will give authority and power over the nations, and he shall shepherd and rule them with a rod of iron, as earthen pots are broken in pieces, as I also have received authority 
and power to rule them from my Father. So here it says, if we overcome, we will receive from the Lord Jesus Christ authority and power to exercise dominion over the nations of the world. So such dominion, both now and in the world to come, was never given to any angelic being. Mankind had it and lost it. And becoming a man and suffering death enabled Jesus to regain that dominion for mankind. And by the same suffering and death, Jesus was made able to taste death for everyone. Now, by the grace of God then, his humanity also uh, enabled Jesus to bring many sons to glory. And the reference here is in chapter 2 of Hebrews, verses 10 to 13. So his suffering in the flesh, the Bible says, were fitting. Now, Jesus, as the Father's apostle, received a particular task from the Father. And here the author of the book of Hebrews used the terminology captain or pioneer or leader of man's salvation. He says Jesus is the captain, the pioneer, or the leader of man's salvation. And then he says uh, to bring many sons to glory. In other words, to restore man to his position of glory and honor that he had originally with God. Now his sufferings, the Bible says, the sufferings that Jesus experienced in the flesh, the Bible says, uh, made him perfect for the task. Now, the word perfect does not indicate that he was imperfect or that he was moving from a posture or position of imperfection, but the word perfect means to complete. It means to make effective or to be adequate. So his sufferings, therefore, made him effective as man's uh, the captain of man's salvation. Now, to be complete and effective as our Savior and High Priest, Jesus' sufferings, therefore, was necessary. Then, his humanity makes him one with those who are being saved. The Bible says here, the one who sanctifies and they who are being sanctified is one. The one who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified is one. His humanity and his suffering makes them all one. Such identity with mankind makes Jesus proud to call us brethren. Listen here how the author of Hebrews, as we now in chapter 2, verse 11, uh, uh, how, he, how he frames this. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. In other words, Jesus and us have the same Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in him, and again, here am I, 
with the children God gave me. That was Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. So the idea of Jesus as the one whose sufferings in the flesh made him the perfect author of our salvation and not ashamed to call us brethren is expanded even further in the remaining verses of this chapter. So here we see uh, in verses 14 to 16 um, that it enabled him, this is Jesus, to disarm Satan and to deliver us from the fear of death. Let me read Hebrews 2, verse 14 to 16. And I'm using the Holman Bible, both in this passage that I'm reading now and the previous one I read just a few minutes ago. It says, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. So what is the author saying here? All of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ and the defeat of Satan was not a ministry directed towards angels, but to Abraham's offspring. And the Bible says that if we are in Christ, then we are Abraham's sons and daughters. Furthermore, Jesus' death gave him the victory over the devil. Through his death and his resurrection, of course, Jesus destroyed the devil. It says in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, of course, you know, the Bible says, For this reason was the Son of God made manifest, that he may destroy the works of the devil. But in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, it says, Be serious, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Now, who would be this candidates for those that he can devour? Those who are drifting. Busy drifting away from Christ, those are candidates to be devoured by Satan. It says, resist him and be firm in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. In other words, everybody who are in Christ, we are in this all together, having to resist the enemy, uh, having to... Uh, be alert of his plans and schemes, which it is to devour us. But Satan no longer has the power over death. The Bible says in Revelation 1, 17 and 18, and I'm using the Holman again here, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. And I'm the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. These are remarkable words of Jesus to John on the Isle 
of Patmos. Secondly, his power was greatly weakened. This is Satan. His power was greatly weakened by Jesus' victory over death. And Satan will be destroyed permanently at the time of our resurrection, when the saints are raised from the dead. It says in Revelation 20 verse 10, the Amplified, and the devil who had deceived them was hauled into the lake of fire and burning brimstone, where the beast, the Antichrist, the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then Jesus' death gave us freedom from the fear of death. The whole human race lived with a fear of death. And this fear keeps them in bondage throughout their lifetime. But for the faithful Christian, there's no need to fear death. The Bible says in Romans 8.37 onwards, and I'm using the Holman again here, No, in all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am persecuted, and that not even death or life, uh, let me read that again, verse 38. For I am persecuted, that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, or hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus the Lord. Here the Apostle Paul explains that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus the Lord. Then, as the seed of Abraham, for us who are followers of Christ, uh, and not to angels, Jesus has given this help, this aid. He said in verse 16 of Hebrews 2, For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. And I quote this for your help. If you don't have this understanding, Galatians 3.29, For if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Then it enabled Jesus to be a sympathetic priest. We're still talking about his incarnation. He is a merciful and faithful high priest. So in coming into this world, Jesus was made like his brethren. He became like a man in all things. This equipped him for his role of a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, firstly. Secondly, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Thirdly, to represent our confession before the throne of God. And fourthly, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So it equipped him for his role as a merciful and faithful high priest. Also, a high priest that was not uh, unfamiliar with uh, our humanity. He's also able to aid those who are tempted because it says that he too has suffered and he too was tempted, though he remained without sin. Hebrews chapter 4, I'm now quoting from chapter 4, even though we are still in chapter 2, but I'm borrowing uh, just this to help you uh, get this understanding. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest 
who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way, as we are, yet without sin. Then the suffering that Jesus experienced also made him compassionate. Um, In Hebrews chapter 5, now verse 2, he's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he is also subject to weakness. Then, therefore, those who come to him can expect to receive mercy and grace in the time of need. Hebrews 4.16 Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. Now, in conclusion, no angel has accomplished such things as regaining man's lost dominion, bringing many sons to glory, disarming Satan, and delivering us from the fear of death, or to become a sympathetic high priest. I think you can understand we are still helping you see that Jesus is far superior to any angelic being. Now, all of these things that I've mentioned now, and certainly many more that we may not even comprehend, Jesus has done by virtue of his incarnation. Yes, he became a little lower than the angels for a brief period, but in so doing, even his humanity makes him far superior to angels. His humanity, the fact that he became incarnate, made him superior to angels because in the created order, angels are given to serve those who are righteous, who are sons of God. In fact, angels have the job of ministering to us. So with the first two chapters, we see the superiority of Jesus, firstly, over the prophets as God's and we see him as God's perfect spokesman. And then secondly, we see him superior over angels, and that is by virtue of his deity and his humanity. So, the question then is, why should you ever want to turn your back on such a glorious Savior? I couldn't help but listen to go back to the words of Jesus in his earthly ministry recorded in Luke 9.62. It says, But Jesus told him, Anyone who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Think of that again. Anyone who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back. What are you looking back to? You're looking back to the world. You're looking back to the sinfulness of the world. You're looking back to degradation. He says, if you look back, then you are not fit for the kingdom of God. My friends, don't drift away. Don't underestimate the value of your salvation. Don't just think of what you've received in salvation. Think of what you've been saved from. Now, Jesus, who was tempted and who has suffered and tasted death for everyone, It's not ashamed to call us brethren. The question is, are you ashamed to call him Lord? Are you willing to be identified with Jesus publicly?
What does that mean in modern society? Can I ask the question? Are you willing to be identified with Jesus on social media? Ah, oh, they have let the cat out amongst the pigeons. You see, some of us, is, we are very private in our faith. We practice our Christian faith within the four walls of the building where we feel safe and secure from ridicule, from accusation, from insinuations, from any, uh, uh, you know, anything that you may suffer as a follower of Christ. But Jesus said, if you are ashamed uh, to be identified with him publicly, he says, I will be ashamed to mention your name before my Father. So are you ashamed to call him Lord? And are you willing to serve him as Lord? Friends, grace and peace in Christ Jesus the Lord to your spirit, soul, and body until next time. God bless you.